Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blue Apron. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined in my Gemini pod, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. We're uh, space twins today. <laughs> we, we are. We're both wearing our rogue NASA t-shirts, as we discovered when we signed yes. on the Skype. Yeah, I saw it in the drawer last night, and I thought... Um, I'm going to wear that tomorrow. And then I saw you said, I'm, I'm wearing my Rogue NASA shirt. I'm like, oh, okay. But it's like not like somebody's going to see you and me together. It's true. It is true. we're far away from each other. We'll have to coordinate that with WWDC. Yeah, that's right. We don't want to <laughs> I'm just, just going to wear it all the time. I'll wear, I'll wear yellow and black stripes. You wear black and yellow stripes. There you go. Man. Yeah. Um, so we got a pre-flight checklist. There's some stuff going on. Although, uh, so this first item, I haven't had a chance to listen to this. So did you listen to this? It's a podcast about space sounds. Space yes. sounds. So it's it's a little homework for our listeners. It's uh, an episode of the 20,000 Hertz podcast. Uh, just as a plug, like I don't, I don't know these guys, but it is one of my favorite podcasts. It's real short. I think it's every other week. And they just talk about different sounds. And this, the most recent one as we're recording this was about how sound, how your voice would sound on the surface of other planets. And so they talk about, if you remember from like middle school science or even elementary school science, sound requires molecules to work because it moves through the air or moves through, you know, liquid or solid differently depending on how dense things are. And so that come, you know, when we're talking about planets that, very quickly comes around to what's the atmosphere like. So on, you know, Mercury or other rocky body, you know, items in the solar system with very little or no, no atmosphere, you wouldn't hear anything. Or if you heard anything, it would be very, you know, high pitched potentially. Then talking about Venus would be very low and rumbly because the atmosphere is very thick. I mean, you'd be crushed to death, but you know, it's a thought experiment. Yeah. Uh, so it's really fun. It's, it's you know, it's uh, it's short. It's a lot of fun. They have a bunch of sa- samples and stuff in it. So uh, you should definitely, definitely go check it out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to it. it uh, it's a cool idea. The I- idea of, you know, we all, I grew up with the, here's how much you'd weigh on this planet and all that right. kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is like, here's what it would sound like on that planet before you... You basically you'd have to have a microphone. We've had some of that like sound from Mars and stuff, but you basically need to mm-hmm. have a microphone because if you took off your helmet, you'd probably die. But yeah, and, you and, hear and they actually they talk about Mars when they get to Mars. Uh, they talk about the Mars 2020 rover, which is going to be equipped with at least one, if not a couple, of different microphones. And so the thought is that you would be able to hear hear the rover crunching over rocks and that sort of thing. So that's, that'll be fun to to hear. That's cool. I, I wonder. If it's, I mean, I want video, like not stills. I want some Martian video, right? I know that's a lot yeah. of bandwidth to get back, but wouldn't that be cool to have just, some real yeah. Martian? Just send send a Nest Cam up with it, It'd be fine. Sure, <laughs> getting fine. it back is the problem, right? <laughs> it's it's true. the The bandwidth required is is really makes it difficult, but uh, it would be fun. It'd be yeah. cool. Uh, they do gifts, you know. They stitch images together, but it's not quite yeah, the same. It's stills, right? And then, and then, yeah. But if you could have the sound, and like, I'd like to see one of those like dust devils whirring and all of mm-hmm. that. I wonder if they could do something. They probably, I mean, they thought of everything, right? I wonder if they could do something where, like, uh, a Nest Cam or some other security camera, like, take video all the time, but only like trim out the video where there's there's movement. 
like which would be unless there's aliens which there's not uh like a dust devil or something like that and then flag that and say yes send me the video of that save save that and and send it to me because there Mm. could be some cool motion stuff but it is very hard to get data back it's slow if a martian walks by the front door send me a push notification yeah that's right exactly right just tie (laughs) tie a tie my my security cams are all magnetic so just like clip it to the side it's oh fine. yeah, that'd be that'd be fine. I'm yeah, sure the uh, we should talk about Mars 2020. We've mentioned it a, a couple times. You know, it, it is basically an, an upgraded Curiosity rover. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's built on the same platform, but uh, from what I've read on it, my understanding is it's a very different set of tools. So they're using kind of the same base technology of you know how it gets around, how it's powered, and everything, but to to do different types of experiments. So uh, that'll be it's coming up here. You know, at some point they'll they'll get it done. So yeah. We'll do it. We'll talk about it. So here's the big one. Big one is SpaceX mm-hmm. is finally making good on its promise that it's had for a long time, which is we're not just landing these first stages back on the ground in order to show you how cool we are. We're landing them so that we can refurbish them and then launch them again because it's way cheaper to refurbish a, a pre-launched, <laughs> previously launched first stage than it is to build a new first stage it's not cheap it's still millions of dollars but it's way cheaper than building a new one and they have scheduled for later this week a launch of a falcon 9 first stage that already launched and is now going to get a second launch yeah jason what do i have to do today to get you into this fine factory checked pre-launched vehicle well We'll put we'll put Lauren Grush's story in from The Verge. It it is kind of hilarious. She goes into the details. Like there is a discount. Like they sure. they say that they, <laughs> SpaceX says that it's thirty percent cheaper. They estimate to to reuse a first stage rather than make a new one. But um, the the company that's having their satellite launched on this is only getting a ten percent discount. But they are getting a discount. Like like they've that we're dropping the price since you, since this is not a shiny new rocket. It's a reused rocket. We're going to give you a. A, a little bit of a, a a break on the deal there, but that's the, I mean that is the promise, right? The promise is that access to che- to space is way cheaper if they uh, if they can reuse the hardware instead of them all being it, it all being single use. Mm-hmm. I think they've recaptured eight stage ones um, out of thirteen successful. This was the second ever to be recovered, and it was a, a barge lander, so that's fun. And they are going to attempt to land this one again. Now, the mission is uh, geostationary orbit, so they got a long ways to go, uh, but they, they think they can recover this. Uh, I liked in Lauren's article, they talk about the mission itself. So it's the, the SES-10 satellite, so it's like communication services to Latin America. Uh, but there's a quote from the, the CTO of the company, and basically they were SpaceX's first like commercial client, I guess, yeah. or a customer back in 2013. And now they're saying we're excited to be the first, you know, using a, what they call a flight proven rocket. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that term. That is the, I, I joke about the previously launched rocket, a pre-launched rocket, but they do actually call it flight proven. It's pretty which is good. Just, that's an amazing <laughs> bit of spin. That's great. It's yeah. not a, it's not a used rocket. It's a flight proven rocket. It's a veteran. It's, it could just do this all day. And so yeah. perhaps it will. <laughs> and he gets into it, you know, saying we believe reusable rockets will open up a new era of space flight to make access to space more efficient in terms of costs and manifest management. I mean, this this is what SpaceX has been 
uh, working to. And and to contrast them to Blue Origin, who have done this a bunch, but not for anybody who's paying. Right? They're just they're doing test flights, and they're they're not going very high, especially nowhere near what this Falcon Nine will do uh, later this week. But it's an important first step, right? Saying it's it's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to do it. So if this mission is successful. And they, you know, they capture it again. I'm sure they will, it will go undergo the same sort of testing it has to be cleared to relaunch in the first place. Uh, I'll be curious to know what they say about the delta between those launches. If, you know, if we had to do this much work to the rocket to make it fly off to the first one, is that work worse the second time? I mean, it, hopefully it would be very similar, right? That these things age really well, but all of this is unknown at this point. Right. I mean, it's entirely possible that what happens when you go through this process is that there are fractures and, you know, or micro fractures or the the the, the material is weakened and you do it a few times and it's just, it, it comes apart. It may also be that, no, it's fine. We were throwing them away when they were perfectly usable mm-hmm. and now we, now we get to use them. So you can't, you don't know until you try, right? This is, that's part of the mystery of this and that's part of the challenge. But the SpaceX, you know, business model is kind of, not entirely, but kind of hinged on reducing the cost of access to space by reusing. Sure. All of the, the whole point of this thing, of landing these things has been to reuse them. So, um, but you know, you won't know until you do it. And, and Lauren Grush's story says very clearly, it, you know, they don't know how many times you could. And she actually says, I think Elon says it's this, but they think it's probably <laughs> less than that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Musk has boasted that parts of the Falcon 9 could be reused up to 100 times, but expects 10 to 20 reuses out of a single vehicle. So it may be that, you know, the whole thing can't fly after X number, but you, you could t- take it apart, basically. And there could be, I guess, individual components in there, individual parts or structures of the rocket that you know, age better than others, and you could kind of take them out and like rebuild or like Frankenstein one together. So, uh, I'd, I'd imagine that's kind of where this will end up, right? That okay, we have these sorts of failures after a certain point, and so we 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 deem it unsafe. But there's all this other good stuff in here that we can recycle, and that that's not you know reflying the whole rocket. But if you can recycle parts a hundred times or different components to you know you. You build a new Falcon 9, rolls off the factory floor, but, you know, 15% of it is flight-proven hardware already. Oh, I, used, I use it seriously. See how these terms work? I just use it seriously. Uh-huh. Uh, again, that is bringing the cost down over time. And I would imagine that that 10% discount on this week's launch will be, you know, will, will slowly grow over time and they can make make it cheaper for everybody. Right. Exactly. And for themselves. So sure. all, everybody wins. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exciting. Uh, so they performed a static fire test uh, yesterday on Monday the 27th. And as we record this on the 28th, this thing is scheduled to fly at 6 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday from Kennedy Space Center. Uh, it's like a two-hour launch window. These geostationary orbits, I mean, it's not like chasing the space station where you have like a very short window. Um, so, so yeah, so we'll keep an eye on that. And uh it's you know it's good to see this this finally moving forward right this has been what musk and company have talked about forever so should be fun yeah yeah it's a great test next next step next, next steps step. that's right uh jason you want to tell us about our sponsor this week sure um this week's episode of liftoff is brought to you by jeff bezos's blue origin nope hmm. that's not it it turns out it's Blue Apron, which is not a secretive uh, space agency run by Amazon's billionaire founder. 
It is instead the number one recipe delivery service with fresh ingredients. I've been using Blue Apron for more than a year now. Um, it's it's It pencils out to about $10 a meal. It's less than $10 a meal. And what you get are seasonal recipes. The ingredients are fresh. So because they're using fresh ingredients, the recipes are timed to use the ingredients that they have that are seasonal, that are fresh at that time. And then you get the ingredients and the recipes in a box once a week. And you make them in your kitchen at home. And I've been doing this and my wife has been doing this for more than a year now. And it's really added to the diversity of our diets. We have meals that we didn't used to make that we now make and remake because, of course, you keep the recipes. And so you can just go to the store and buy those same ingredients and make them again if you have favorites. And all the while, Blue Apron's still sending you new meals to try every week. So it's, you know, we don't get bored with our dinners anymore like we really did before we started using Blue Apron. The ingredients are great. Uh, they support a more sustainable food system. So they are uh, like their seafood is sort of sustainably using um, standards developed with the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Their beef, chicken and pork are from responsibly raised animals. Uh, Their produce is sourced from farms that practice regenerative, regenerative farming. So it's a little like reusing a rocket, sort of, except with lettuce. Every meal comes with these recipe cards. They are easy to follow. You can prepare them. They say in 40 minutes or less, so it's not like you're going to be uh, in the kitchen for two hours. But what you are going to get is is a home-cooked meal, a meal you made yourself from scratch in 40 minutes or less. And the ingredients are provided so you don't have to go shop and get that just that thimbleful of that thing. If, if you, the recipe needs a thimbleful of a thing, they will give you a little plastic thimble or a little cardboard thimbleful of that thing. It's very convenient so you don't end up buying like a big jug of something and then using a teaspoon and then what do you do with the rest of it, right? So it works great for us. Here are some examples of meals that you could get in the near future. Crispy gnocchi with fontina cheese sauce and roasted baby broccoli. I think we had that last week. That was really good. And let's say spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salad. Wow, that fresh mozzarella is pretty amazing. I'm used to the low moisture part skim that I get at the store and they sent a little ball of the fresh mozzarella and it was spectacular. Uh, Blue Apron delivers to 99% of the continental U.S. So if you're listening to us and you're standing on the continent of North America in the borders of the United States, there is a very good chance that they will deliver to you. There's no weekly commitment. You look online at their website, see what's coming down the road. If the meals don't appeal to you, you can opt out for that week. You can choose which meals they send to you. So there's really no risk. If you skip, they just don't charge you for that week. And every ingredient arrives ready to cook. They are fresh. And if there's a problem, they will make it right. That happened to me once in the year plus that I've been using it. It couldn't be easier to say to Blue Apron, oh, something was missing. And they're like, we're very sorry. And they comped that that uh, that week's meal for us. So they're, they're very quick to make it right if something does go wrong. So check out this week's menu. Get three meals free with your first purchase, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You will love it. It feels and tastes great to make a meal at home with Blue Apron. And thank you to Blue Apron for their support of Liftoff. Blueapron.com slash liftoff, a better way to cook. So, Jeff Bezos, Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos wants you to make some food uh, on the moon. On, on the moon food, really. I would imagine Blue Apron is much better than anything you could get on the moon. Does not, yeah, Blue Apron does not uh, deliver except to the uh, 
you know, certain parts of the world, and the moon is not part of the world, so yeah. not available. Sorry. So, Enceladus. Enceladus. Uh, your second favorite moon? Is that right? Second favorite? Could be. Could be. Maybe. It's up there. It's up we, there. Go with the water, we go with the water moons. I know. Yeah. yeah. A I mean, our moon. I think our moon might be number one because I see it all the time. Yeah. It's my buddy. And then Europa. So, but yeah. then Enceladus is right up there. Okay. So, we'll say three. So, Enceladus, you know, we... we spoken about in the past is basically one of these outer solar system moons that at at first glance is just a ball of ice but turns out probably has liquid water ocean underneath its icy surface and uh, Enceladus if you've seen pictures of it there's links in the show notes of course it has these what are called tiger stripes but basically these big colored like cracks or stripes across the moon's surface and it's also been known for some time that there are active geysers at the south pole of the moon uh, that basically shoot uh, uh, this uh, watery ice mix out into the solar system. It's thought that those plumes, of course, could could include uh, signs of life uh, in its ocean. And that's really what we're talking about here. These, these moons, uh, in looking at places in the solar system that could potentially have life or at least have the components for life, uh, this moon is on that short list, right? If you, if you have heat and you have water uh, and you have, uh, you know, potentially the the right parts you need. Exactly. Exactly right. And so this, the tiger stripes have been generally thought to be part a geological feature that is related to the the plumes, the fountains, that, that this is all part of some surface geology that is leading to uh, liquid from the ocean to escape into space, be shot into space. And this new study of Cassini data suggests that, and it's logical, right? Like they've known for a while that it, that the South Pole area seemed warmer. They suspected that it was warmer and that the ice was thinner there. But this seems to um, make it even more clear that the whole South Pole of Enceladus is warmer. Now, it's not like super warm. I think they said it's like 50 Kelvin, which is still really cold, yeah. but it's warmer than you than you would think and maybe warmer than like is currently when our current thinking about the processes by which Enceladus is warm. Because you might think like that far out in the solar system around Saturn, this should just be a solid block of ice, right? But we know that first off, there's tidal forces in in these systems, in this Jupiter and Saturn systems that stretch and squish these moons. It's why Io is so volcanic around Jupiter is because it's getting mushed and, squ- and stretched and all that. We also don't know if there's something happening at the core of the of the moon that might be giving off some heat of its own. Um, the sun contributes a little bit, but it's not a whole lot. So it seems warmer than we would even think that it, it could be. And that also suggests that the thickness of the ice sheet there, which I think people don't entirely understand, like most of Enceladus, when we say there's a liquid water ocean under there, they think like it's an M&M or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's this th- thin shell and then inside is the ocean. It's like most of Enceladus, the the liquid water ocean is like 12 miles down a 12 mile thick sheet of ice this is not a shell this is a i mean it is a shell it's a huge shell around that but at the pole at the south pole they think it might only be a little more than a mile thick which explains why you would have processes that would allow there to be those eruptions of liquid right 
and the tiger stripes and all of that in there because it's warmer and it's thinner and whatever you sort of internal processes in Enceladus lead to the South Pole being the place where it gets warmer and it uh, and the ice is thinner and that's where the eruptions come from. That's the system that's happening underneath the surface. Yeah, it's it's you know. I think before we got we started the show, really, that's kind of how I thought about these moons too. Like, oh, this like you just go up there, and, like you, you hit it with a hammer or something, and it shatters, and you have water. I mean, it's not it's not that at all. But what's interesting with this, bringing it so close, means that we could potentially study it far easier. It would be easier to potentially land on the South Pole and only have to drill. You know, say that we wanted to get down to water, which no one's really talking about in any sort of time frame that makes sense. But it's closer to us. Um, like uh you know like the Europa lander there there have been there's been a paper and a uh, a team has put some thoughts together around what they call the Enceladus Explorer right which would be you know uh, a lander mission to uh to the moon it would look uh, it would carry what the what the team calls the ice mole which is uh, got to work on that marketing a little bit release the ice mole <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would be a probe uh, to sample that ice and and the materials there. Uh, not, you know, we're not talking about drilling down a mile to water, but seeing what's there, seeing what what is um, what's going on. You know, if you brought this thing close enough to where one of these uh, geysers are known to be, you know, you could potentially pick up some material from underneath. Uh, this is a at this point, best I can tell from this reading is very much a research project at this point. Um, yeah. It started only in 2012, which is not a very long time ago. We we're talking about, you know, interplanetary missions. Well, we've known about Europa's ocean since what, the seventies or the eighties. Yeah. And uh, Enceladus has been only a target for the last decade, maybe. So uh, a, lot, a lot more thought. And Europa is going to get a, a probe before Enceladus does. But there is this question, like if the, if the, if we decide at some point to tap into an ocean that we actually want to send a swimmer into one of these oceans, this might be the closest access in some ways. And if that if that were true, because I don't know what the processes are in Europa, but you know, if it's like, well, we can make a probe and it's a lot easier to go 1.2 miles down than it is to go 30 miles down that for our little drilling, you know, burrowing, uh, you know, icy probe thing then maybe Enceladus becomes uh, becomes a target for that. And also, there's just, they're separate bodies. So if we go to Europa and find no signs of life, it doesn't mean that Enceladus couldn't be different. So right. you gotta, you got to check it out. Yeah. Um, but, but I do I like what Emily Lactawalla said when we talked to her about how, you know, the, the solution might be a mission that is really good at flying through the plumes mm -hmm. and sampling them, which, of course... Um, Cassini wasn't built to do because we didn't know the plumes were there when <laughs> right. Cassini was built. It found them. Yeah. So you could build something that doesn't, you know, you don't have to build a burrowing creature to go down into the, the ocean in Enceladus to sample its its ocean if you can build some instruments that can sample what's in the plumes. Sure. And I would imagine if something like this were to move forward, that would be on the table as a first step, uh, without a doubt. So. Yeah, just it's just uh, it's fun to talk about these things, you know, these missions, uh, even the Europa one, you know, so far out there in the future. But I think in in looking at what you know we could do, uh, I definitely vote in favor of checking checking these moons out more closely. Yeah. 
Uh, so to round out this week, uh, we're going to talk about the RS25. Some some listeners may recognize that name immediately as the uh, the engines at the business end of the space shuttle itself. So they were the three that were clustered together on the shuttle. And uh, the RS25 is going to be uh, reused, uh, to bring that back around, uh, in the SLS program. So the shuttle program, they were attached to the orbiter. Obviously, they were reused. Um, I think like 100% of them were reused or, or real close to it. They, they were very reliable uh, motors. And because of that and because NASA had an inventory of them left over after the shuttle program uh, was wound down, it will, they will be at the, the business end of the SLS as well. Now, they're not going to be reused uh, because the – uh, that center section of the SLS that these would be mounted to uh, is not designed to be recoverable, unlike the solid rocket boosters on the side. But uh, so it's it's one and done on these, and it's back in the news again because NASA has been testing these uh, motors at Stennis, which is not actually not that far. It's kind of in my neck of the woods, um, you know, compared to yours. But it's where NASA and and other uh, space companies do a lot of uh, static stand test of motors. So they have this this big facility, they go and bolt an engine to it and light it up and 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 see what it does. So in this testing they've been looking at the power output of the motor as well as the control uh scheme for the, for the motor. So in the shuttle era they produced um like 491,000 pounds of thrust. That was at running at 1.4 or 104.5% percent um, the SLS is going to run up to 109%, which brings it at 512,000 pounds of thrust. Uh, so getting a little more horsepower out of these. And part of that has to do with the controller. So each of these uh, motors has a controller on it, and there's a controller that speaks to the whole array of them. And uh, this has been a big update. You know, when you, when you have a platform that's as old as the RS-25, that was really, you know, put together, I guess, like, you know, I think it goes back to like the early 70s, if not even yeah. earlier. Real old tech in those things. And this new controller has like 20 times more processing power. Uh, it's way more reliable, they say, and it weighs 50 pounds less. <laughs> you, when you have decades to work with, you can really shave some numbers down. Yeah, I like the – it's funny. You keep on talking about the RS-25. Of course, you know, most of us just think of this as the space shuttle main engine. Yeah, They called it the SSME uh, but it's the, you know, on the back of the shuttle, not the, everybody thinks about the shuttle configuration. We did our shuttle episode, like the, the, the solid rocket boosters on the sides. There's the big tank. The tank is actually feeding those engine nozzles on the back of the shuttle. And those engine nozzles, those engines are the, what is now the RS-25. And they're, you know, <laughs> they, they, they're, they're good. <laughs> uh, maybe the controller's a little, you know, old, but now... You know, you upgrade it a little bit, and I do. I do kind of love the fact that a lot of what uh, we're working with is is like we've got existing proven technology that we can use. So let's just use it again. Mm-hmm. Why not? Why not? Yeah, they're going to use uh, four of them on at least the SLS Block One that that first uh, first layout of the SLS. And like I said, they're they're not going to be reusable, so they're going to use up the ones that they have. And then they will start. Uh, they're going to start manufacturing new ones again. So using this, this like you said, flight-proven technology. There it yeah. is again uh, in SLS, which is you know, 
we talked about about that vehicle at length in that episode, and a lot of it is stuff from the shuttle program, sort of reconfigured, reused, reimagined. Uh, with and like the shuttle stack, it, it uses solid rocket boosters on the sides. They're going to use five segment uh, solid rocket boosters, so I think a little bit bigger than what was on yep. the shuttle. But uh, it's it's a lot of familiar tech there, and that's that's one way they're keeping cost in check, and that's one way they can they can get SLS up and running quicker you know it's tentatively scheduled for late 2018 uh we'll we'll see if that if that happens but yeah uh, i don't think it will but that is even if it's 2019 uh even if it's the end of 2019 that turnaround time is still pretty quick and it's because they have all this anessa uh, and its partners have all this hardware and all this knowledge at their disposal to to repurpose Right, and for those who are wondering, like, why why do we kill the space shuttle program if we're reusing the SRBs and we're reusing the engines? And the answer is that although we're using a lot of that same rocket equipment, the people will be in a capsule on the top instead of a spaceship on the side. And for safety reasons, that's actually way better because Mm -hmm. when you're on the top, you're going into clear air. You don't have stuff falling on you. You don't have, you're not attached. And, you know, if you think about Challenger, like how do you, how do you abort out of that when you're attached to the side of the tank that's exploding? And if you think about Columbia and the debris falling on the, on the vehicle, it's solved by having a capsule at the very top that is able to blast off of the top and abort and, you know, jet away in the case of an emergency. So, you know, the rockets are not the issue with the with that shuttle design. I mean, obviously, the details of the Challenger incident happened because of a, a failure in the O-rings and the SRBs. But the idea is that you could avoid the the human loss by having that being on the top. So that's the difference is like that we can reuse the rockets, but we've completely rethought where the people go to put it back up as it was in the early days above the above instead of attacked on the side. Yep. Well said. Um, yes, 2018, an uncrewed mission to send Orion, uh, the new capsule around the moon. There's been talk. I don't think anything's really come of it at this point of, <laughs> of some in the Trump administration wanting that first flight to be crewed, which seems yeah, bonkers to me. They've talked about it. It, it. it would be quite a thing to do yeah. that. Uh, yeah. Uh, it seems hasty, but it's you know they haven't asked me. They don't call. They don't call. They don't write. Yeah. So if you want to find show notes for this week's episode, we have links to all the stories we talked about at relay.fm/liftoff/slash/forty-three. You can find links to contact us there. You can send us an email. You can find us on Twitter, of course. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is at Jay Snell, and you can find me there as ISMH. And until our next fortnight together, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.